everybody, and welcome to That's Life, where the best thing about working on December 25th is that the roads are clear and my commute takes about 30 minutes. What a pleasure to drive on the Van Wick when there's no one else there. Good morning, folks, and thanks for listening. I am Miriam L. Wallach, blogger, writer, general manager here at the Nahum Siegel Network. You can find me here after Allison and right before Nahum's live lunch. I'm coming to you from the home of the Nahum Siegel Network. Hey, there's sun. The sun is out of Rome. Look at that. The sun is shining here on the beautiful Lower East Side. Good morning to Avrami, who's behind the board. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I thank God I'm Wonderful well. spring is back. <laughs> Can you imagine, by the way, if that rain had been snow? It would be terrible. It would have It would have been bad for the Jews. Well, it's not actually just for the Jews, but it would have, well, it would have been bad for me. Some people like a white holiday. Yes, and I like a 30-minute commute, so that's what I'm all about. Danny is here somewhere. Good morning to Danny as well. Good morning to Nahum who is around here as well. If you're a new listener to the show, thank you for taking a break from your day to tune in. If you're a returning listener, thank you, as always, for making us part of your day. Please follow us on Twitter, Nahum Siegelnet, all one word. Miriam L. Wallach, all one word. You can follow me as well. Our first guest is actually on the line. I don't want to keep him waiting, not only because um, he is taking time from his personal time to join us, but because this conversation is going to take even longer or could take longer than the time I have allotted. I want to welcome Professor Jeffrey Gurak. He is on the phone. He is a professor of Jewish history at Yeshiva University, and his accolades and his bio are certainly longer, or should be longer, <laughs> and given more credit than I can even allot time for on this show, but he's a returning guest here at That's Life, and good morning to Professor Gurak. Good morning, good morning. You know, today I don't teach at Stern College, but I agree with you that... Uh, while the great blessings of teaching at Yeshiva is uh, December 25th, where it takes me seven minutes <laughs> live from Riverdale and park on 34th Street in front of the school. And you walk through the doors, and Amazing. you come into our own world. So I, I agree with you. Van Wick must have been great this morning. Yeah, it was it, it was actually a pleasure to live in the five towns. It's the one day out of the year that it is a pleasure <laughs> to live in the five towns. Okay, that sounds good to me. Yeah, I'll take it. Uh, the other 364 I can I can do without. But anyway, I appreciate you joining me this morning. There is so much to talk about in light of the uh, very, very tense time here that is going on in New York um, with the slain New York uh, Police Department officers who were killed, dare I say, execution style last Shabbos during an already terribly tense and hostile time in this country and with race relations and demonstrations going on throughout the city, some quieter than others. And then we have this terrible tragedy that occurred last Shabbos. And I wanted to take the opportunity to talk to you about the history of the Jewish community with the NYPD. And as a as the man who was the expert on Jews in New York, you were clearly the first person I only, and the only person I wanted to talk to. So I thank you for making time. Thank you very much. It, it really is an intriguing question. And uh... In many respects, it speaks to a number of dynamics of New York City Jewish life. So it's a pleasure to be with your listening audience. I do want to make mention, by the way, that your father worked for the FDNY. Am I right? He was in New York City. He was a uh, New York City fireman from 1939 to 1959, and that's one of the aspects of the uh, relationship between Jews and civil service. We'll get to that uh, as we go along. Uh, it was a it was a depression job. It was a, a job that was a gap in his life, but it was a job that he was very proud of. And we still have his fireman helmet in uh, in our home, so in the case, so we remember that quite fondly. So that's incredible. That that is definitely one artifact that I'm sure some one of the grandchildren probably brought to school for like heritage night, and everyone was ooing and eyeing at that. I well, can... that's why that's why it's in the that's why it's uh, 
in case so they don't wear the hats around the house all the time. <laughs> I imagine. I imagine. There's um there's a lot to be said about the way, at least from from my experience, both being raised at, in, in a from home and the way I raise my children, the way we teach our children or, or the values that we teach our children in terms of respecting the police and the fire department and people who put their lives on the line in order to make sure that there is no civil unrest and that people are are safe and 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 in in doing that and in raising our family that way is that is that indicative of of the experience that most Jews have in their home and the and the way that most families have have demonstrated their respect for the for for the police over the years well i think one of the things immigrant Jews have to learn is to respect the police um you mentioned my, my parents. When we would go to synagogue, uh, occasionally on the high holy days, there would be a policeman outside the, uh, the synagogue. And my father would sometimes say to me, you know, back in Russia, where, my, where the Gurukhs come from and the learners my maternal side come from, uh, when you saw a policeman outside the synagogue, you were worried because they mm-hmm. represented evil, represented the czarist government. In America, these police are here to protect you. So that's really a very important lesson that I think... Uh, we should transmit to our children. There were times, of course, where Jews and the police did not get along all that well. Perhaps we'll talk about that. But generally speaking, uh, we look at the police as being our friends. One of my uh, rabbinic friends was arrested during the Soviet Jewry movement, you know, one of these sit-down arrests. And as the policeman came over to him, he said, Rabbi X, I won't mention his name, it's my honor to arrest you, you know. <laughs> and he, of course, you know, arrested him, and he was... Uh, he was arrested for 10 minutes. They processed him in a mobile van across the street, and uh, he moved on. So um, in our community in Riverdale, by the way, we have a special affinity for the police because our rabbi has been involved, Avi Weiss, in many, many demonstrations. Right. And on the Chagim, on Yom Kippur, occasionally the local police uh, captain comes in, and uh, he receives quite a, a nice ovation. So that's part of the tradition as well. You alluded, however, that the relationship has not always been smooth, that we've had our moments where we, where we as the Jewish community have not gotten along with the police department. Right. Well, probably the best example was an event that took place in 1908 where the police commissioner of the city of New York named Thomas Bingham published an article in a magazine in which he claimed that 50% of the criminals in New York City were Jews. Oh. Now, were Jews involved in criminality as immigrants? Absolutely. Uh, uh, that was one of the ways Jews dealt with America. Uh, all immigrant groups, all minority groups get involved in crime. But with Jews 50% of the criminals? Obviously not. When this statement was made, ironically, it was one of the best things that happened to the Jews of New York because a coalition of uptown Jews led by some very important reform leaders like Louis Marshall and Jacob Schiff, along with some downtown leaders, joined together in establishing what was known as the New York Kihila, the Organized Jewish Community of New York City, which lasted for 14 years from 1908 to 1922. They set up four divisions, four bureaus, a Bureau of Industry to deal with unemployment, which contributes to crime, a Division of Criminality, which dealt with the fact that uh, there were many Jewish uh, juvenile delinquents. Uh, In fact, to this day, there's a school in Hawthorne, New York, the Hawthorne School, which today does not service primarily Jewish kids, but back then it did, mm-hmm. which was established by the Kila. And the two other bureaus were the Bureau of Education, 
which today is the Bureau is the Board of Jewish Education, and the Bureau of Philanthropy, which today is Federation UJA. So out of this anti-Semitic canard arose uh, a panoply of Jewish organizations, two of which still serve the Jewish people today. So that that was that was a very dark moment, but it was an incident rather than a trend in terms of uh, criminality, in terms of the police and the Jews. But generally speaking, the relationship has been uh, quite good. If you don't mind, Miriam, I want to go back one more step. Sure. Okay. Anything. Um, before he became governor of the state of New York and president of the United States, Teddy Roosevelt was police commissioner of the city of New York. And T.R. was a very good friend of Jews. And in the late 1890s, when he was police commissioner, he did two things that involved the Jews. First, in 1896, there was a terrible heat wave in New York City. Actually, it was the same time the Democratic Party was meeting in the old Madison Square Garden to nominate William Jennings Bryan. Uh, as police commissioner, he worked with the fire department to hose down the Lower East Side so people could have water, clean off the streets. The streets were, you know filled with garbage and manure from the animals. Right. So that was one thing he did. Hmm. The other thing he did, which is in many respects black humoristic, that in the late 1890s there was an anti-Semitic conference in New York City. Since the anti-Semites accused the Jews of being an international conspiracy, why not have a conference in the city of New York, <laughs> which was you know, one of the largest Jewish cities in the world? Right. So one of the German uh, delegates demanded a complete uh, a police escort to protect him from the Jews of New York. And Teddy Roosevelt did that and provided him with five Jewish cops. Okay? <laughs> Which in eighteen in the late eighteen nineties probably was the the complete the right. cohort of Jewish policemen at that time. Right. So Teddy Roosevelt had a long history of being a good good to the Jews. That's great. And these were just two examples thereof. That's great. You know, so then it begs a question to me, why um, such fanfare was made when a number of days ago at the site of the vigil for the two slain officers, members of the Hasidic community came and lit a menorah as a, mm-hmm. as a sign of solidarity and, and a symbol of, of respect um, and a, an effort to bring, I guess you could say, a little bit of Jewish light as other people are lighting candles, etc. at a vigil. This is, this is how they were demonstrating the, the idea of bringing bringing Jewish light or bringing light to a dark time. Why is that stand? Why does that stand out? I mean, it went all, it was, it was viral on social media. Why does it stand out or should it stand out as being such a unique moment where it sounds like this is just exactly what we've been doing all along. It's just more symbolic of this otherwise good standing relationship. Well, I'll say two things. First of all, you're correct in saying it wasn't the only Jewish demonstration of support, of solidarity with the police. Uh, we had one in Riverdale. Okay. Uh, Sharon Feinbaum, the, the gay and lesbian synagogue, ran their own uh, event. Mm-hmm. I think the Hasidic involvement speaks to my first point mm-hmm. about, generally speaking, people who don't understand the internal dynamics of Jewish life might think that the Hasidic groups have no affinity for what's going on in America and no respect for the American way of, uh, of doing things. Uh, this is just an indication. So it may be a surprise to some people, but it really wasn't a surprise. And one other possibility is that if we go back to another troubling time in New York City's history uh, a generation ago, 
when you had the Crown the Crown Heights riots, right. there was a sense that uh, the police stood by. Mm. So the fact that the, that the Hasidic groups came out, I think, is a, a show of respect for, and also an indication that they see themselves, at least politically, as part of the larger uh, New York City uh, scene, that, uh, scene at this point. So, uh, And again, this is not a Jewish story. Uh, this is right. a, a story of, um, I'm, I'm out of town right now, but I'm told that the mayor uh, had the, the, the lights dimmed at the Christmas tree uh, a few days ago. Right. Sure. Another indication of how um, one, of the, one of the attempts at healing during a very, very difficult situation right now in the city. Professor Jeffrey Gurok from Yeshiva University joins us on the air. He is the most knowledgeable man I know, or that exists, I would argue, in terms of the, his knowledge of the history of the Jews and New York City. He is the author of a number of different books on that field, including Orthodox Jews in America and Jews in Gotham, New York Jews in a Changing City. That was put out by New York University Press in 2012. You know, Professor Gorak, we had our own uh, tragedy in the Five Towns area last weekend, or I should say at the beginning of Hanukkah, where a home in North Woodmere burned down, um, had a massive fire as a result of a menorah catching fire to a set of drapes. And the reason I bring that up is because just a few days ago, a volunteer fireman who suffered major injury during that fire um, died. He succumbed to his injuries. And um, he was not, you know, in the five towns, we have a number of um, Orthodox volunteers, both in the fire department and Hatsala and the auxiliary police. But this was a non-Jewish black man from Inwood who was part of the volunteer effort that night. And um, it was a terrible tragedy. And the entire Jewish community in the five towns is, is reeling, not only for the loss for this family, but of, of, the, of the Jewish family, of everything that they lost during the fire, but as well, obviously, for this family um, who is celebrating a holiday today and doing, it, doing so without their father and, and their husband. And so... I wonder, on a larger scale or in a larger scheme, the the relative respect that goes between both the the, the Jewish community and um, the volunteer servicemen who, and we've talked about this before, the civil servants, the um, the community servants, those who are first responders, and um, again, that kind of mutual respect that exists between both of those worlds. Well, we called uh, uh, the fire department New York's bravest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they are. They're they're extraordinarily brave. They go they go in when other people go out. Right. There's no question about that. <laughs> and uh, uh, it takes a great deal of courage to go into a uh, into a in, into a burning building. Um, I want to read just one other thing, and that is we are talking about moments in time where Jews and uh, the police did not get along. Yes. Okay. And I talked about you know the the Soviet jury movement where the police and because in many respects, the, the American public supported the, uh, the actions of Jews in the Soviet jury movement uh, against the Soviets. So it's no big surprise that the police would say to a rabbi, it's my honor to arrest you. But huh. if you go back to the 1960s, during the Vietnam War, the Jews of New York were heavily involved in the anti-war movement. Mm. And that was a time where there was a great deal of tension between the young people of New York many of them Jews, uh, many of them non-traditional Jews, and many of them traditional Jews who, uh, who demonstrated. And there were moments in time where there were incidents with the police. 
So I don't want to paint the picture as being a totally supportive situation. I think it has something to do with what the atmospherics are as far as how Jews see themselves in America. Mm-hmm. And during, during the Vietnam War, there were all sorts of, uh, uh, of protests. And again, Jews were involved and the, uh, the police were, were there. And there were moments of tensions and arrests, not the civil arrests that you had with Soviet Jewry, but uh, again, a, a moment of great tension. So that's part of the picture as well. Something that you mentioned actually in your first comment, um, when you talked about your father and the mm-hmm. and, and the the um, the police officer and just that re-education of immigrants um, and and of of Jewish immigrants, are there times in recent history that you can recognize or that you can refer to where we have reverted back to our old fears and we look at the police and say, as immigrants, we look at the police and say, you know, they're they're not our friends. Like, are there, are there times in more modern history where we have gone back to our old ways? Well, there, there was an event, uh, I neglected to mention this at the outset, there was an event in 1902 that has been discussed by historians uh, in many different respects, and that was the, the funeral of Rabbi Jacob Joseph. Mm. As some of your listeners may know, from 1888 to 1902, he was the one and only right. uh, chief rabbi of the city of New York. Actually, that's not really true, because at that point... <laughs> There were two other competing rabbis who claimed to be chief rabbi. But be that as it may, when his funeral took place on the Lower East Side in July 1902, it was one of the great funerals of all time. Uh, I can only compare it in my own life to the funeral that took place where Moshe Feinstein passed away, I guess, a quarter century ago. Uh, it was an all-day funeral. Five different synagogues wow. uh, uh, competed for the right to have the Vaya in their, in mm. their synagogue. And in voluntaristic America... You know, there were five, there were five uh, events, five services. Anyway, when the last event took place, um, the funeral cortege went down Grand Street. Actually, they went, eventually they would go past where you're speaking to me right now on Grand Street going down to the East River. Wow. You're on the south side of the street, so if you can look out your window <laughs> and imagine a hundred and some odd years ago. Anyway, they went past the factory that was... Um, dominated by Irish-Americans, okay. and a lot of tension between the Irish and the Jews, and a rock-throwing incident be- took place, Ugh. and the police came in and beat up, beat up the Jews, and according to Irish historians, beat up the Irish as well. And the point that's been made is that the police at that point uh, were very, very aggressive in terms of breaking up riots, mm. and that, that stuck with the Jews for a long time mm. as an example of... Uh, of police violence. But fortunately in America, it was a relatively rare incident, and I guess that's what makes the Jacob Joseph story so robust, because it continues. But you see, the Irish-Jewish encounter, and one of the stereotypes we have of the police, is that uh, many of them were Irish-Americans. There were a lot of tension between them and the Jews on on the employment level. Jewish teachers, Jewish teachers and Irish teachers. And one of the people who contributed to this tension was the mayor of the city of New York during the 1930s, and that's LaGuardia, who was a fluent Yiddish speaker. His mother was a Jew. Um, In any event, when he developed the civil service system, it made it possible for getting your job not through political patronage, but do a competitive exam. And I always like to say Jews do well in exams. How did my father get into the fire department? 
a qualifying exam. So now Jews are coming into an Irish preserve. It's true in the fire department. It's true in the police department. It's true in the teaching profession. And there was a great deal of tension between the groups, which only mitigated a lot when Jews start leaving the fire department uh, in the 1950s. So uh, I have a number of friends who are children of firemen, and none of us, actually one of my friends, was a second-generation Jewish fireman. Wow. Firefighter, okay? That's incredible. Um, most of us are doctors, lawyers, and Indian chiefs. Right. That's the way things are. Uh, <laughs> right, and, and, and radio show hosts. Dr. Gorak, I, exactly. I thank you so much for joining me. This was a fascinating conversation, and as always, I, I truly enjoy having you on as a guest. Thank you for making time for us this morning. It's my pleasure. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to That's Life here at the Nachum Siegel Network. Rabbi Steve Berg is the Eastern Director of the Simon Wiesenthal Center, and he is the host of Community Roundtable here at the Nachum Siegel Network. Good morning, Rabbi Berg. Good morning, Miriam. How are you? I thank God and well. We only have a few minutes, but I definitely wanted to take a couple of moments just to talk about the sensitivity training that members of the NYPD do or experience at the Simon Wiesenthal Center in Midtown Manhattan as part of their training. Yeah, we do uh, We do quite a lot of training with NYPD, with Department of Corrections, all kinds of law enforcement officers. Uh, we, we focus on racial profiling. Uh, we focus on basically um, how law enforcement, how officers interact with the public because you know, they're interacting with the public on a, on a constant basis. And I think most people would say, you know, you need good customer service. You know, we're thinking mm-hmm. of you know, good stores, Target, other places, you need good customer service. That's 100% true of law enforcement, but you also have to remember that many times that they are interacting with the public and with suspects, uh, they're nervous that their life is on the line. Right. Uh, so you're trying to balance um, having them communicate in a way that's respectful um, of people's rights, et cetera, but also every time they approach a car. Mm. Uh, and I've had many officers say so. Every time they approach a car, they basically, that may be the last time they approach a car. And right. that's, you know, that's the balance. Right. Yes. And, and that, that is the priority. That comes first. Safety comes first. And, and um, that's something that people do not appreciate. We take our police officers for granted. We take our law enforcement officials for granted and their safety for granted, honestly. So just by the fact that you're mentioning that point and that they have expressed that fear to you is really quite telling. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that the academies haven't really paid attention to up until now. One of the things that you'll hear from them is uh, they're taught exactly how to approach a person, how to approach a car, where to stand, how to position yourself, where's your weapon, et cetera. Not as much time is placed on the actual conversation itself. You know, one of the officers said to me recently, he said, what I like to do is I like to tell people right away what they've done wrong because, you know, people get very, you know, when you get pulled over, you don't really know what, what it was for, and you get very apprehensive, right. and the tension grows. And he can, you know, he felt that he could just deflate it by telling you what you did wrong. And then all of a sudden, you know, you can move on from there. And not all officers, you know, do that. And, and a lot of times that kind of builds. Right. No, absolutely. Have you had um, an increase in um, conversations this week with members of the NYPD or other um, areas of law enforcement that are looking to bring members of uh, their departments into the Simon Wiesenthal Center to discuss matters of race with you? Yeah, look, to be fair, we've had these conversations growing way before these recent incidents because I think uh, with everything that happened over stop and frisk and all the other things going on, um, these conversations have been had for a while. Uh, We've been talking not only to law enforcement but also um, to the elected officials. And I think that the Wiesenthal Center is is a very good bridge between some of the frustration of, of, of the law enforcement officers and the frustration of elected officials 
we kind of are a place where everyone can kind of come together and agree that this type of training, you know, both sides will agree that this will be very, very helpful for the officers. And are there times, or as part of the training, I should I should rephrase, as part of the training that the officers go through, are there moments where they meet with different minorities and different groups and, and are able to speak freely and, and get out some of those questions or some of those those tense moments out there in a safe environment? Is that part of the training? Uh, you know, it's definitely part of training. One of the benefits of our training is it's not at One Police Plaza. It's in our museum, right. uh, and their, their bosses, so to speak, are not there monitoring all of our trainers, we, we don't accept a trainer uh, unless they have at least 20 years' experience in NYPD. Mm. So all of our trainers are veterans. They all have experience. They've all been exactly uh, where the cops are sitting. Um, in terms of, you know, the truth is, though, with NYPD, they are fairly racially diverse. Right. Um, and there are other, other aspects. FDNY, for example, has been struggling. We've been working with them in terms of they're not as racially diverse at all. Um, so, so, you know, in terms of the NYPD, there are... You know, many officers that do know the people of color, and there is a lot of that kind of integration. So I think it might be different for NYPD than it might be uh, somewhere in middle America. So I think that they do have that exposure. But again, the trainers have all been there where they are, and they can speak freely. That's, uh, that's unfortunately a, a rarely known stat that the NYPD has a great um, has a great makeup of various minorities, and and I and I appreciate you bringing that up. It was something that I that I neglected to 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 mention, but it is something definitely that is important for us to appreciate that the two gen- the two officers who were killed last week are both they themselves members of minority groups. Absolutely, and, and you see it in, in New York. Like I said, I think New York is a little bit better than the rest of the country in terms of that of the the makeup. We deal primarily with NYPD and correction officers, and, and you'll definitely see it much more reflective uh, of society. Again, this doesn't mean there's not work to be done, right. but, uh, but it definitely, I think, is a, is a benefit to trying to do the work here in New York City. Rabbi Steve Berg, Eastern Director of the Simon Wiesenthal Center, host of Community Roundtable here at the Nachum Siegel Network. I thank you for your time this morning. Um, I, I wish you a, a quiet couple of weeks at work, I think is probably the best way I could say it. <laughs> Always a pleasure, Miriam. Thank Thanks you. so much. You've been listening to That's Life here at the Nachum Siegel Network. We're going to pick up our music there in the background. Oh, Rami, if you can, uh, when you start, there we go, that we start hearing it there. It's Arya Kunstler's Gom off of the Our Eyes Are On You album. It is a beautiful CD. Let's go through today's lineup so you know what not to miss and what to expect. A full afternoon of programming right after That's Life. In just a few moments, the live lunch will begin with Nachum from 11 to 1. Today at 1 p.m., the stunt show is hosted by Mark Zamek, who is here in the studio. He's pulling off the stunt of all stunts. Avrami will be teaching him <laughs> right here, live on the air, how to engineer. And as a person who has a um, a real fear, a terrified, a massive fear of being behind the board, I can't wait to watch Mark go through this. Frankly, oh, stop it. It's like, uh, you know... It's working without a net, folks. It's the best best way I can put it. Join Nachum here tomorrow morning from 6 to 9 as the host JM and AM live here on the stream. NachumSiegel.com and, of course, on 91.1. Don't miss the weekly update with Malcolm at 7.40. We have announced Naomi is live from Gourmet Glot tomorrow with a supersized edition of Table for Two starting at 9 a.m. Her guests include, of course, Jay Booksbaum from Royal Wines, Howie Klugsburn from Gourmet Glot, and Chef Eitan Bernath. The Kid Chef. He is adorable. Don't miss him. Abrami hosts Saturday Night Seagull this Saturday night starting at 10 p.m. Matis with JM Sunday from 7 to 9. And the rest of the programming continues starting Monday morning. I close again, as I mentioned before, with Arya Kunstler's GOM. That's life, everybody. Bye, guys. Come,